Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Elza Malik. Elza, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Alex. This is Elza Malik. I am uh, the owner of Blue Monarch Group, and I'm really excited to tell you a little bit more about um, marketing on a psychological and neuroscience basis. Very interesting. So... Tell us about your company that you're currently at. So I own a marketing agency um, that is really at the root of it, a business consulting firm that um, started off with helping customers and clients around reverse engineering their growth. Um, In my past life, I used to run analytical departments and business intelligence departments. And I would say, you know, this marketing attribution model or funnel works and this one doesn't. And I got tired of telling people that one works or doesn't without giving them the why. So then I moved into the psychology of marketing and really understanding how you build trust through marketing drivers, um, what and uh, across various audiences and across the type of uh, personas or, or psychological profiles that need to go into it. So Blue to Monarch Group at its heart unlocks the true potential of a brand. Um, through that psychology of matching the brand identity with their target audience while achieving the goals that the organization is looking for. Before we continue, here's a quick word from our sponsor, Adverity. Marketing is a thankless task. You go through all the trouble of setting up your campaigns, perfecting your messaging, and targeting your customers. But when it comes to revenue, who gets all the credit? That's right, sales. Well, it doesn't need to be this way. Adverity is the marketing data analytics platform that lets you easily monitor performance and link it to actual revenue in your company. What's more, the advanced analytics module will also give you predictive insights into how best to adjust your campaign spend based on the best ROI. Go to info.adverity.com slash MXA for a free demo. Again, that's info.adverity.com slash mxa for a free demo and now back to the podcast what was the decision process like for starting your own business um i had always consulted here and there um for a really long time so it was always ingrained in me and prior to that entrepreneurship has kind of always been in in my family and and i've been always exposed to it so it was very much a natural segue into doing this How I decided to go into the marketing agency was really the idea that I could be incredibly creative and highly analytical at the same time. It's one of the reasons why I love marketing is you get to see, you get to play with both sides of your brain. What got you into marketing um, and analytics in the first place? So the analytical side was more of uh, a segue of I had finished school, I really wanted to understand why certain things work. Um, And um, analytics was just a a really normal segue for me in the sense of um, having a business degree, moving into that segment, and really understanding like how businesses perform was really where where I um, sat into. So then I built out my data analytics skills um, from there. And as I got you know, more honed in on um, how business operations work, the closer I got to sales and marketing, uh, and then uh, making the official move to marketing and 
and building marketing science departments to say, this is exactly what, you know, the business is, is adhering to. Marketing traditionally, um, with the exception of the last probably five, 10 years, has always been a um, big question mark when it comes to how does marketing measure itself in its goals. And um, time and time again, it's always been a little bit harder to justify a marketing department. In fact, in most cases, marketing is one of the fewest things, last things that is considered in in, an, in a company. Um, you know, you get your sales department, you get your product or service all dialed up, you get your operations, and then you finally think about marketing. Um, when in reality, it should actually be the forefront of the conversation because how you how you identify yourself is is marketing. Um, how you how you position yourself in the in the marketplace. So um, as I was, you know, learning about analytics, there was always that big question of like, you know, 50% of the things that we're doing in marketing is great, but the other 50% is not, and we don't know which one is which. So we're just going to do all of it. Um, so through the the way that I would build attribution models of like figuring out multi-touch point um, uh, account-based marketing programs or general campaigns that we would put together and understanding like, are we moving the needle? Do we have the appropriate leading indicators to say we are going to meet our sales goal, our revenue goal, um, and then our brand um, equity and, and exposure goal? I want to ask about the skills you had to build to grow in a marketing and analytical capacity. And how do those skills differ from what you would recommend people build today to succeed? So because I kind of, so the way that I built my analytical skills was a combination of taking um, appropriate course, courses saying like, I need to understand how to write SQL. I need to understand how to, the, how to do all these things for the sheer fact that there wasn't, you know, marketing analytical um, software at the time. Now I think there's quite, there's quite a few more. Um, available to you, but that foundation is really critical because when you think about how you lay how you lay a dashboard or how you tell a story in a dashboard, it's always really, really important to know what are the questions that your subsequent users, whether that be your executive team or your marketing leader, is going to ask, and then you go backward. Then you say, okay, I want to know what my, um, if you're an e-commerce company, I want to know what my overall conversion rate is. I want to know it by channel because I want to see which channel is performing better. Um, I want to know where where we are at to goal. And, and you think about those things. Um, and then the subsequent tools, like I learned Power BI for a lot. I worked on Domo. That was actually mostly self-taught. Um, I dabbled in Tableau, but it's not as a as a more common tool in in the organizations that I I partnered with. Um, so those were will probably be the big ones because you can use the HubSpot dashboards or these big automation dashboards, but when you really want to get into the data science side, you really have to use like a business intelligence tool to help you come up with those. Um, and that's where that's the skill set that I had to learn and pick up on my own. Um, I think at the time it was actually just like Power Query before it became Power BI. Um, so that's where that's where I would start. Because um, I think even today there isn't a really good um, solution that can help you, that can help marketing organizations. 
funnel through. There's a lot of integration tools that are helpful just to know about, but not a whole lot of like, we build your marketing attribution models based on the requirements that you have. There's not really a baked set, like with a lot of work, like with a lot of departments that already have that. What advice do you have for anybody who's looking to enter into a management position in an analytics group? What skills should they build? How would you approach that uh, career transition? I would probably start with getting an understanding of um, what is your, uh, I would start with understanding like if you are in a data analyst role right now, um, there's a there's a gap between knowing how to do the job and then knowing what questions are are going to be asked of you as the head of analytics or the head of BI. And I would start there and say, do I know enough about the business world? Because that's really the biggest difference between organization between uh, an analyst and the one that runs an analytical department. You have to know your your internal customers and what they're needed at. It's very much a service-oriented department. So it's not just pulling up really thoughtful, beautiful reports. It's getting back to the heart of why we're doing it. And so I would say take the initiative of, of like learning into, leaning into what you what you're looking for. If you're in a software company, then figure out, okay, what what's our what's our goal this year? And you would hear those because you're the one building those platforms anyway, like building those analytics. But then lean into like, what else do you think someone someone above you would ask? And sometimes that even starts with like, what else do you think that your head of BI or head of data analytics is going to ask? And take that initiative and say, let me just spend 10 more minutes and, and poking and prodding. Curiosity is the biggest thing when it comes to analytics in general. Um, if you... Um, are really curious and kind of want to poke and prod and, and understand things better than you currently do. That's a very um, important trait in data analytics in general. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's all about asking and answering important questions. Yep, and being empathetic. Like, put yourself in their shoes. Of if you, um, if your internal customers are, you know. Um, directors of a customer experience or sales or vice presidents of, of, of um, operations or whatever, what are they going through day to day and what, what answers could they really could make a difference in their in their world? Um, if you're in the head of operations, then you're probably looking at like, okay, what costs do I have? And then what other ways can I look at this cost to um, both in hard costs and people costs or whatever variations you have, depending on the type of business you're in? Um, you know, put yourself in their shoes a little bit and say, oh, well, I think if, this, if I answer this question for them, that might help them a long way. Do you have any tips for managing stakeholders or de maybe delivering uh, an analytical insight that goes against the mainstream thought of the uh, company? So what I will tell um, any analyst is whenever you get a request, the request is already a predefined solution of what that requester, um, whether it be management, whatever stakeholder you're talking to, um, is has already predefined, I, I'm pretty sure I need this. And I would say about eight times out of 10, that's not what they want. Um, so you have to play translator a little bit 
before you even get started on looking at a set of data and and say, okay, well, how do you want this? What questions are you trying to answer? And and then you'll have a clearer picture. What I um, in most common roles, data analytics or business intelligence is kind of like a purple role. You're you're very highly highly analytical, but you also are very much a people person. You have to understand what they're looking for because sometimes what people are asking for is not what they mean. Um, but that's just the best way that they can communicate. So that's probably like that initial discovery phase is so key because you go down a rabbit hole with what you think you you're being asked to do. And then you run further and then you get you produce that report and that's not really what they're looking for. It didn't answer the heart of what they're what they're trying to solve. So anytime I always used to get a request, I would say, well, what are you trying to accomplish with this information? What answers do you need that that can help you make a difference in your business based on this request? And, and that's when you uncover it. And sometimes you have to like whiteboard it, meaning you have to sit either on person to person or Zoom or what have you and say, okay, so you need it this way because that's the answer that'll get you and so on. And, and, and then it like you'll mentally think about how you should lay out the data in order to get to that answer. So do you ever use machine learning in an analysis or in data that you produce and what value does machine learning have in general for the analytics industry? So I didn't, when I was an analyst on my own, as I started leading teams, we did bring in machine learning. In fact, part of our, like Blue Monarch group isn't just made of creatives and, um, you know, designers and content writers and uh, and like, it's actually also made up with a lot of engineers and um, scientists. And so in, in our group, and the, the, the one really amazing thing is when you put those two groups together and you align them well to each other, that's where that's where like the secret sauce is. Um, so a lot of our engineers are data scientists and and they build models over and over again to say we're going to test X, Y, Z, and we're going to see, we're going to predict that this model is this mark, new marketing funnel that creative just did is going to go into it. Some of our stuff is like much more psychology based though. So we run into like sentiment analysis and say, well, you know, three out of these four gave us the sentiment. So now we're going to judge it a little bit. We're going to tweak it and give that information to creatives. And then they're going to spit out something that four to four times is going to give us the right sentiment. Um, so it, it is a very fun aspect. Um, and a lot of our customers are in that life sciences or, or new technology space. So they really, they very much appreciate when we, when we say, here's the type of messaging that is going to resonate with your audience, as opposed to just being a very popular brand. So how does psychology play into marketing? Oh, it's in, it's pretty much in everything that we do. Um, we don't, we don't even start, um, uh, campaign design without taking into consideration, um, the psychology of our, our customers and, and how we play into it. So, um, every, every new brand that we work with, every, um, every rebrand that we do, every campaign design session, it's, it's literally in our, in our blood, um, with, with these, because, what if we learned anything from COVID? It's that um, there's there was a little bit of a an awakening of things that really mattered 
were close to the vest and were kept there, things that didn't um, kind of went away. So in order for us to generate things like really valuable content or have, have the right messaging and have the right ads, we have to be empathetic and we have to put ourselves in their shoes and, and understand their psychology about the things that they, they, um, that audience cares about. Otherwise we've already lost. We've already come into the game four or five steps behind. Uh, and it, that's really what happens with a lot of our programs where um, we have clients come in and say, I'm doing this program. And, you know, three or four years ago, it was wonderful. And now it's not. Um, because it, it was one of those where it's like, oh, this is a nice to have, um, uh, as far as content or PR strategy or what have you. Uh, and now it's, now it's kind of fallen to the wayside because people have reprioritized. So, um, you can't just go to the tip of the iceberg. You have to go deep when it comes to the messaging and, and understanding it. Um, substance is at a much more critical point than it ever was before. Can you give some examples of what behavioral or psychological traits may influence a marketing message? I think that a lot of our um, a lot of our a lot of our groups, so to speak, really tap into um, going backward. So, um, if we think about the the main psychological profiles, for example. Uh, Let's say you are, you know, a builder. Um, let's say you have a, a, a tech, you're a tech company, and a lot of your, um, a lot of your audiences are head of procurement, head of technology, etc. Um, um, and we we pick out the appropriate psychological profiles, like you know, um, a builder or a nickel and dimer or conservative or so on. Those are kind of the the bigger three that we run into. And they're backed in. They're backed into by the four methods of the four modes of motivation. Um, so, like builders really like to do things themselves. They want to understand how it works. That's a very technological role. When you think about most CTOs, come up from an engineering background. Um, so then we would say, okay, well, if we want to, if we want to lean into that type of persona, um, where are the resources do they go to? What are the resources that they go to? in order to validate their, their findings or their information. They're very uh, information-based. Uh, so then we say, okay, well, if you're only using the, if your audience is in these type of resources, because that's what they trust, whether that be everything from like a business insider to some, some um, uh, networking events that they go to that are, that are specific to um, these technological events, like, CVPR was one that we just went to, which is computer vision and pattern recognition. Um, that was two weeks ago, I believe. A um, lot of builders in that event. So our our messaging was very, very heavy on here's how some things work um, to an extent. Um, and, and, uh, and that's where we lean into that kind of discussion. We even go into as far as like writing the, like creating the appropriate playlist to play in the background. So it appeals to that group of people even more. And then we lean in and bring them back. So that way, as they're passing by, they're more likely to stop at that booth. That's really interesting. It's a lot of fun. We get to play both like a little bit of mad scientists and, um, uh, you know, uh, free spirit artist 
uh, in both ways. How do you learn about the latest trends in marketing? Oh, I do it. Um, uh, I do it a lot of different ways. I think the key there is to keep your your um, areas of research diverse. Uh, so I do everything from like reading up on things that are um, new in the market or uh, going just, you know, getting an understanding of what, what is trending, so to speak. But there's also really beautiful, thoughtful nuggets in meeting people face to face. So I tend to pack my schedule now that we're officially able to go in person. But before that, I would do online, you know, some virtuals to really understand you know, what is new, what is out there. I tend to mix my, my schedule with everything that is, you know, really technical, um, and under, and get an idea of like, okay, what's going on in the tech spaces that I can potentially either partner or, um, understand how that's changing the marketplace, um, and, and pivot appropriately. Um, or I go to very highly, business-oriented or creative-oriented um, uh, spaces that will allow me to brainstorm that. And mind you, that's not just me. Pretty much most of my team goes on three or four events a year. Um, prior to COVID, that's what they did. And post-COVID, they're continuing to do that. We just did a bunch of virtuals. And, and then we have like monthly like creative hubs of, hey guys, what have we learned? What do we want to talk about? What do we think is the next big thing? And we call it like our our emerging ideas because um, some things will stay on the board for a couple months, um, our virtual board at least. And then we'll be like, oh, you know what? I'm starting to see this, this actually come to some kind of real vision as opposed to just an idea. Why don't we experiment with a couple, a couple of things with um, this new client because they're really they would really be open to trying something like that. We and, and in that case, we bring our our clients to that journey of when we have a new idea like that. That's you know a little bit out there. That's one of the things our clients really appreciate is like you know we're gonna spend um, a little bit of time on this just to see how it how it trickles through and and then document that exp- experimentation um, so we know how it went for for future reference. Um, but it's one of the things that our clients really, really appreciate because um, I'm a I'm a major fan of foundational marketing tactics. Um, I think that as long if you're doing the the basics really, really well, and you don't have to worry about um, uh, managing the tactical, it really frees up that white space for you to be to do something incredible, uh, and that's where because we have the foundations really, really solid, we can experiment with things like, you know, Web3. We can play with a Momo board um, app and see how how we can drive people to that space or that community um, and things like that. Really interesting. So do you have any entrepreneurial advice for somebody who maybe is thinking about starting a business in the next couple of years? What, what advice would you have? You know, it's funny. I had someone ask me this question just like a few days ago. And what I would have told you today would have been probably a little bit different than what I would have told you five years ago. Um, I, and I think it's just because it depends on where you are at in your in your life. Um, and if you are uh, looking to branch out in a, in a, a 
if you have all these years of experience and maybe you're looking to branch out into a new business or some kind of consulting rate, um, I would say go out there and really meet the the people that you want to work with. Choose the target customers that you want um, and 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 go about it. If you're in maybe a, a more novice role or, you know, want to try something very different, but have very easily transferable skills. Um, I think in, in that space, it's a lot of like learning. Uh, you, you're much more in learning mode of like how you can transfer those skills and how you can brand yourself a little bit more differently. Um, so you set yourself apart from uh, somebody else who has, you know, decades of experience into that space. But either way, I, I think we've seen now more than ever become a, a very large driver of new entrepreneurs. And it's very, very exciting. And part of a lot of groups um, on, you know, everything from LinkedIn to Facebook to some of these Web3 platforms, just to kind of get an idea of like, what is what is the driving mantra? And it it's, it's so exciting. It makes me so happy every time I see someone's like, hey, guys, I'm starting a new business. It's around this and it's around that. Um, it, 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 it hits home for me because that's what I did a while ago. And it took, a, you know, it took a little bit of a village for me to figure out my way. And the more that I can, I can help people drive through that, which is the heart of what PMG is um, built on. Really interesting. Cool. That's great advice. Um, do you have any AI companies that you like or any good examples of AI being used in business? Oh, um, I haven't, I guess it would be, um, one of the ones that I really, really like, and it's because it hits very close to home for me. Um, I just started, I just partnered with them. It's called Accessibe. Um, they are a AI ADA compliant company. Um, and I absolutely love them. Uh, uh, personally, I have family members that would, that could really use, um, uh, that function in every single website they, they, they appear on. Um, so it, it is very interesting and it goes beyond just color blindness. It goes into keyboard skills and some of those where it's, um, it's such a great thing to do automatically. Um, as someone who has been at the, you know, thinking very closely whenever we do a web design project or a, a new brand or whatever, we think about, you know, the type of disabilities that we need to adhere to and how ADA compliant we are. This accessibility takes it to like several levels above that. That would be way out of our skill set to ev having everything from the helping hand to uh, easy navigation. It, it, it's wonderful. Yeah. I'm a huge proponent for all of those AI for good companies and I try to partner with them as much as I can. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a smart business to start in, uh, in this year in uh, mm -hmm. AI for good company. Yeah. So obviously there are some risks with AI and collecting a ton of data and having a machine be able to learn from it, make decisions. How do you feel about the threats from advanced computing? Are you an optimist, pessimist, and why? I would say I'm definitely more of an optimist. I think that with every technology we've ever had, um, you know, in the world, those can be used for good and they can be used for bad. 
and it's up to us as a humanity to decide how they get used. Um, and that's where I'm a huge proponent of promoting those AI for good companies. Um, that's the, a lot of some of my clients are in AI. And it's it's a wonderful thing to see because they they are also optimists. They they say you know we could make x amount of dollars with this pro, with this um, tool, but we're going to be very diligent about who our clients are going to be and what are they going to do with it afterward. Um, so it is it is very um, synergized with with my personal values and and the values that I've instilled into BMG. I think that, um, you know, uh, when it comes to all tools, AI is just the next new one that we we've we've come to face and and uh, recognize as a as a uh, game changer when it comes to how the world works and how we can change it. Um, it's all about how you how you utilize it and in what ways. There's there's a lot out there that we could make a serious impact on um, with emerging technologies. Um, and not, I'm not even just saying software. I'm talking about hardware as, that, as well. There's a, there's a, um, I think there's a very bright future if we, if we apply it ap- appropriately. Yeah, I agree. I want to go back to your upbringing because in our pre-call, we talked about you starting in theater and I'm curious how that influenced your life's path. Oh, um, well, I actually started, I was always a very highly creative child growing up. Um, I was actually born in Kosovo, and that's where my love of arts began. Um, and it, it just kind of continued. However, when, you know, when you decide what field you want to be in, um, I was always really great at the, at the maths and science of, uh, curriculums. Um, so when, you know, the world kind of came around, it's like, okay, you gotta, you know, you gotta go back to the real world. That's the, that's really the, the mantra that the United States definitely pushes on, um, its students. Um, I don't think it's as much in Europe, but it definitely is one that is, get, is pushed here. So, you know, I went through that route and I was always a curious person. It wasn't as if I was, um, not being true to myself in, in the direction I took. It was just more of a, um, this is how the world works in, in the United States. Um, but it's funny because, you know, shortly after I, I made a turn into marketing, which allowed me to do both. Um, so theater and, and, and music and choir and, and um, all of the arts really allowed me to see the world in a much more open way. Um, I was a writer for a really long time through throughout school. And um, when you have those skill sets of, of be, being open to being vulnerable, which I think art is at the heart of, um, it allows you to be much more risky when it comes to, I'm going to try this marketing campaign. You know, we're going to run it for two weeks. We're going to figure out what it does, but I'm, you know, you develop some of that skin of this could work. It's not for everybody, but that's the point. And then when we got into the psychology of marketing, it's like, well, this is actually, this should hit the appropriate people the way we want it to. So um, 
it is it is an interesting kind of full circle that I have done. Um, but I, I I wouldn't change any of that. Um, I absolutely loved the creative side that I was allowed to um, fully utilize um, growing up. Yeah, that's really great. That's uh, hopefully inspiring to some people out there. Yeah, I think of all those artists that are really trying to see how they fit into the corporate world. And there's such a there's such a place for them um, that I I wasn't privy to until later on in my career. Um, but, you know, the, the those that majored in uh, art or history or uh, architecture, um, it, it, it you, you know, the graphic design worlds, they're a little bit easier to translate or, or creative writing. Those uh, there's there's a home for you here. Um, and I, a lot of my team members are digital nomads. They actually came from, um, interesting backgrounds themselves, um, and, and kind of come from all parts of the world. Um, but they, the, the creative ones have, have that kind of background of like, you know, I used to run a choir and now I'm, you know, managing, uh, content marketing for, <laughs> for VMG. So it, it's, it's very interesting to kind of go through it, but, um, there's something highly valuable when when you have those those groups of people that know what it's like to be truly vulnerable. What would you say to somebody who says, "I don't want to work behind a computer all day?" Um, so most of my team really doesn't work behind a computer all day. Like, um, if they are, they're then I have not done them justice in in the in the in the way that BMG runs. So, um, uh, especially the creatives ones, they, they spend a lot of time white spacing and, and internally collecting what they want to do. Um, sometimes, you know, they have, they carry a tablet with them in order to jot down those, those points of brilliance that they want to document, but it is much more of a go brainstorm this in whatever medium you have to. Um, in whatever location you have to do this, whatever your, your, your true home is, your, your mental home is, or, um, that's where you should go. And that's why we're not bound by a location. Um, we've never been really. Um, but that's kind of the beautiful part is I, I spent, I split my time between the United States and Southern Europe because my family lives there, but, um, everybody has that one place where they're like, oh, I'm here and I can just like let it all pour out of my um, brain or heart or soul or wherever it's coming from. And and then you produce something amazing. And I would never take that away. You, sa- you said you split your time between the US and Europe. How does that work out logistically with uh, running a company? Um, because we've always been remote, it's never really been like a logistical issue, if that makes sense. Um, apart, most of my team actually lives in Western Europe. Um, so it's not that big of a, a difference for us. Um, so we just kind of, you know, we all have, um, we post our hours of when we're in that time zone. Uh, but even within then, sometimes my team members, you know, hop around across countries and, and move around different time zones. It works. The, the key there is trust. Um, I know there's a, there's a lot of companies out there that are pushing to bring people back because they don't want to lose the culture 
And there is a way to keep virtual culture and it's very powerful. And whenever I go see my team members, let's say I am in France um, and I you know, I'm going to Nice, I'm going to pass Nice. So I'm going to stop by and see one of my uh, teams. It's like we, you know, we don't skip a beat. Um, there's a way to do it. There is nothing that replaces the human experience 100%. But when it comes to the fact that um, that person produces their best work when they are the most comfortable and that's just the city and location that happens to be in, that outweighs me needing to see people in an office. Uh, uh, and that's the that's the key there. Um, so everything from like a Slack, that's that's our most main communication standpoint, unless it's more um, formal than we use email. Um, so yeah, we have a whole ecosystem of, of virtual and we have, you know, Friday huddles that we go to, um, we're entering summer hours, uh, or we've entered summer hours because, uh, uh, because my team partially lives across the globe. They're, everybody's subject to different, um, cultural breaks and so on. So we are going through that at the moment. Um, so that's always a little bit strenuous, but it's worth it in the end. The clients are happy about the work that they produce and we're meeting the goals that our clients are expecting and the team members at the heart of it. That, that's that's the lifeblood of my company. Do you have any other tips for how to maintain a good work culture when remote? Um, so I would say the you have to lay out your foundations. You have to give... If you are a new business owner or even an existing one and, and is struggling to say, how do I, I would love to have people remote. I just don't think it logistically makes sense. You do need to invest in the appropriate tools like the communication ones, like the collaboration environments. Um, and everybody has a different component um, that it, that includes a project management tool because we all need to make sure where everybody left off um, and set out, set out the right rules of engagement. So um, if you have, you know, your employees across the United States, that's four time zones that you have to kind of think about whenever you have a meeting. So you can't schedule a meeting at eight o'clock Eastern time zone because that's insane for the West Coast. Um, so those are the things that you really have to be thinking about. Um, the, the upside to it is once you lay out those rules of engagement, we call them house rules um, of no meetings, you know before eight o'clock at, at that person's time zone, no meeting, like those kind of things. Um, those allow us to give the grace for opening up the time that that person is available for. And, and that when you set that expectation, it really, really helps to say, this is, this is what we've all agreed to and we're all going to follow it. Are there the exceptions to the rule, meaning we're going to schedule this meeting at 7.30 because it's the only time everybody is available. But, you know, Jill, you're in Seattle, so you're not going to be in it um, for the first half hour. Yeah, that's fine. You know, those happen. But that shouldn't be the, the common place. That should be the weird one-off because we couldn't find time. Have you heard of the concept of no meeting Wednesdays? I have. I've heard of no meeting Wednesdays. I've heard of no meeting Fridays. I've tried to do it. It's it's weird because everybody has different days. Um, you know, whatever day works for one group of people doesn't work for another group of people. Um, I do tend to like block out 
periods of time to say, okay, you know, um, I personally am, am not taking a meeting until, until, um, after nine 30 on Wednesdays. Cause I just want to like recap on all the emails that were ended up or Slack, Slack notifications that ended up on my, on my inbox from, from Monday to the Wednesday morning. Um, so that I tend to do pretty often. And I encourage my team to also have like off hours. So they turn off their Slack, they turn off their notifications when they're, when they are truly taking that time off, especially, um, actually regardless of the role, engineers need to white space things and just kind of sit and breathe through it. And they can't do that if they're constantly seeing Slack notifications show up on client notifications. It's, it's just not conducive to focus. So, um, Everybody has their kind of period of time and they suck go through it. Like I try to keep mine on a particular day, but things happen and then I have to move it on a different day. Um, and that's just my, my white space period that I, I specifically block for a particular topic. And that's what the rest of my team does too. How many emails do you get per day? Oh, it depends. Um, let's see how many, like, Valid emails do I get yeah. or how many total emails I get? Um, valid will be hard because I don't like count them, if that makes sense. I would say I get about a couple hundred emails a day. Um, and then of that, maybe a third to half of it is valid, meaning like something I have to either approve or respond to. I try to stay out of um like one of the things that i think is a big crutch for a lot of organizations is they they copy me on everything um and there's 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 some you know some part to that but i tend to let my head of operations and those things validate um unless we're with the exception of like us onboarding a new client where we want just make we want to make sure the experience is there and the summer is always a little bit more in flux because we have we have we don't have our full team um, a lot of our European team members tend to take more time off. So then we have temps and we have to transition them appropriately. So there is a little bit of that juggling. Um, but I think that's like the highest it gets. Um, the other emails are more just like, do you want to buy our, our tool? Or, um, you know, general sales emails that I get all the time. But I would say probably about 100 or so a day are are things that I at least have to just look at. I don't necessarily have to respond to that's that's pretty minimal what tips do you have for managing such a big work like workflow or inbox to kind of keep moving through it without getting burnt out so when i go through those um i mean i have an amazing operations person that really knows how to how to like keep the engine going um because um, and they're mostly in charge of like a lot of decision making and, and, you know, that's, that's the person I have designated to make those and I 100% trust them. So 99% of the time when I get an email that I have to review, it's more just like, Hey, client said this, make sure we mention it in the next call if I'm going to be in it. So that way I'm aware of that information. So my team is really, really good about just having that as a note, um, uh, in in our and it's mostly like a CRM alert that we have of like someone posted something and said hey star 
or highlight to the next um, strategic call that we have with our clients. So we remember to talk about it um, or, and sometimes they're monthly. Sometimes it just depends on how big the client is and, and what the cadence that we've set. Um, but all of the other like more client-based decision-making happens with her um, because she knows, she knows, she knows the company. She breathes it every day. Every, every single person in our organization does. Um, the alternative to that though, is when it comes to like, you know, business specific, uh, components, like we're going to hire a new person, or we need to figure out how we're going to lay out, um, this new experiment that we want to try with blue labs or so on. And those are the things that I'm mostly privy to. I think, I think the key is they're just like having people you trust and let, let giving them the autonomy to do what they are really good at. I'm not going to hire somebody and then watch over them every single day because what's the point of hiring them if I'm going to do that. So in a lot of jobs, there is certain parts that are very repetitive where every week you will do the same kind of task. And then there's a portion where you're doing net new work and you're kind of bringing new ideas to the table and innovating. What would you say is the split in your role for repetitive versus innovative work? Um, so when it comes to business operations, I think that is the most repetitive where, you know, Make sure we look at what um, some of the more I, I call more like func like basic functions of a business. Um, and that includes everything from like, you know, did we get everybody's hours in so for payroll and, and things like that, that we just I just kind of more look over. I'm not a very good repetitive person, to be honest with you. It's one of the reasons why my head of operations is an amazing repetitive person. Um and and that's why when I solve for something, I don't really like to ponder it on it over and over and over and over again for years and years on end. So um, I would say at most, it's probably 20% repetitive, 80% new. Do you use a to-do list? I do not. Really? Um, no. I have... I have, we have like a general project management tool that we all live in. And then I have my own little board, but it's more of like, here are the projects in play. And a lot of them are sales oriented. So it's a little bit different. Um, you know, um, a lot of my day-to-day -day repetitive stuff is more around what new client are we talking about this week and how, how are we positioning it? So even though the actual details inside it are different, technically, when we have a new client, we go through the same process. Um, the, yeah, I, I tend to just, if I have a to-do list, it's probably going to be no more than three items. Um, cause that's kind of how I plan my day. I have a mental to-do list of the most, the three most important things I have to do today are X, Y, and Z. That's it. If you have, I personally think if you have anything more than five, it's really hard for you to be successful in a role like this. Because most of the time, you're probably going to be in meetings. Um, another time, you're probably either planning or strategizing on something. So when are you going to actually have time to do if you have 15 things in your laundry list? Yeah, so it's like you, you have to be able to understand the most important things to do because there's you could always be doing something. And so you have to focus. Yeah. And I think that the, like when I, you know, 
I look at the projects that are going on and then I lay out, okay, today my top three priorities to accomplish are X. Do you ever mess up when in an, in an initiative and how do you, um, how do you communicate failure to you, the people you work with? Oh yeah. I mean, the, part of the, the thing that we do, especially for blue labs is we always document our failures very transparently. Um, I'll give you the best example. I had a client come in and we did our initial discovery and so on. And, uh, and, um, I, uh, because of the, the, it was a, you know, a referral, I took the initiative of like making sure we had the strategy in place in the way that I wanted it. And then a few weeks into actually the engagement, we realized the things that they wanted weren't really what they wanted. Um, and it was more of just like summer and things that occur. So we just took a pause and we said, hey, guys, we missed something here. I missed something here. So why don't we just like take an hour with the client and just recalibrate and then have the appropriate component? There is there's no point in condemning failure um, because all it's going to do is make people hide from it. I joke around. I'm like strict parents make sneaky kids. I think like strict bosses make sneaky employees. Um, and that's how, that's not the culture I want. I want people to admit like, oh crap, I messed up. Let me just raise my hand, point it out, and then we can all fix it and move on. You learn something from it. Great. Move on. But we're all human at the end of the day. Things will happen. Things do happen. And we just take it with a stride and say, all right, move on. If there's something that like, you know, we could have caught, then we, you know, learn from that mistake. Um, and that's how we work through it. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've worked at agencies and I've been a client for agencies where when you're running that fast, like failure is not an option. Um, and it's just not the culture I want to breed. I love that innovation. Yep. You have to be able to learn from your failings. And if you constantly punish people from them, what are they going to learn? just to hide it. Yeah. It's very wise. Um, Thank you. Yeah. It took a while for me to learn that. So. <laughs> As a perfectionist, it took me a while to learn that. Cool. Yeah. Well, I, I want to thank you again, Elza, for coming on. This has been an amazing discussion. Well, thank you so much, Alex. This was uh, wonderful. I'm so glad I got a chance to talk to you. Awesome. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.